Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, February 10th, 2014, and this is episode 1298 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Monday, it's a listener feedback show. This is where I respond to things that are going on in our community and concerns and questions that you guys have. When you send me email, you send it to jack at the com, and you put question for Jack, comment for Jack, subject for Jack, story for Jack, video for Jack, article for Jack, whatever in the subject line. The key is to put in you know one word and then for Jack in the subject line. And then uh, tell me in one or two sentences your point or your question or what you think about what you're sending me, and then give me what you're sending me if it's an article or a link. And then if you want to give me de details, do give me all the details after that, and you're more likely to get on the air that way. Again, sometimes I think people think I'm picking on them when I'm this particular about how you send me content. But if you got 400 emails a day like this, you be kind of picky about the format that they come in as well, especially if you wanted to help people and you wanted to get as much on the air as possible. Anyway, before we get into your feedback, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. You know, I, I say it all the time, but I'll just keep saying it because it's the truth. With, with, with firearms, what you have is a triangle of operator efficiency. You have to have a good gun, good quality ammo, and good quality training. And if any one of those is missing, you've got a problem. And if one is completely devoid and non-existent, you have another problem altogether. So it's one thing to have crappy ammo. It's another thing to have no ammo, which is a situation people found themselves in uh, during the ammo shortage, having no ammo or very little and then not being able to train and, and continue on that other plank of operator efficiency. Also, think about it this way. If you have a gun but no ammunition for it, what you have is a very expensive club. That's what you have. You have a very expensive blackjack or uh, maybe a very expensive uh, you know, uh, stand-in for like a baseball bat or something if it's a long arm. You do not have a gun. A gun without ammo is pointless. It is useless. It is expensive club. That is all that it is. So you need ammo. You need ammo so that it's there when you need to rely on it. You need ammo so you can train and continue to work on that other uh, pillar of, uh, of, of, of gun operator efficiency, which is the operator itself. So check out BulkAmmo.com for great prices and great selection. BulkAmmo.com also supports the member support brigade, so check the benefits section of your MSB before you order. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does and does both very well. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go on their website, point, click, and buy, and they'll be shipped to you with lightning fast service and selection. Check it out today, readymaderesources.com, from the tactical to the practical, from the guns to the gardens and everything in between. Long-term food storage, uh, product, products for your uh, solar and wind projects, and everything else you can possibly think of, you will find it at readymaderesources.com. Uh, they also do a special deal for those buying uh, long-term storage food from them for MSB members, so check the benefits section before you order from them as well. On the MSB, that brings us to our MSB discounter of the day. Every day I feature one, one company that's not an official sponsor but does offer a discount to MSB members. Today uh, is both uh, a really great discounter and an announcement, a brand new one, Finally, after talking about it for a week and a half, I have it done for you. Conflicted, the survival card game, offers all MSB members a 20% discount. Uh, I'll go a little longer with the discount uh, of the day since it's also an announcement. 
for you today. Conflicted is an awesome game, and I have to tell you that I hate games. I freaking hate games. My family loves games. My kid likes to play games. My wife likes to play games. Our intern Joe likes to play games. My my son's uh, uh, new girlfriend loves to play games, and we have you know great nieces and nephews that come over, and my niece and my nephew come over, and they like to play games. And the, the niece and nephew are like, you know, adults now. They're in their their twenties, and they have their kids that are my I guess grand nieces or great nieces and great nephews, and everybody likes to play these games, and I I hate them. I hate sitting down and like, well, let's play the game. Okay, well, let's set it up first. And like 15 minutes later, people are still talking about how to set it up. That makes me want to blow my brains out. It really does. I have no use for it. Or you go to play the game and you get the game going in like an hour into the game. No one's won yet and you're still jacking around with this freaking game. Two hours into it, no one's won yet. Or these role-playing games where people are setting up characters and crap. I don't like games. I like Conflicted. It's straightforward and it's simple. You have a deck of cards. You draw a card, you read the card aloud to the group, and then you respond to the scenario that you're presented with. Uh, you get three minutes to do that. If you need all three, you take it. If not, you just take as much time as you need. The group then discusses it. You say your final piece, and then you are all the other players score you zero to three. You can do it publicly. I give that a two with one scorekeeper. Everybody can just write it down and do it anonymously. At the end of the game, whoever has the most points wins. Done. Easy. I like that, and I like that it's not like you have to play 10 rounds. You can play four rounds, you can play three, you can play 15, as many as you want. It can be a 20-minute game, it can be a one-hour game, it's up to you. No setup, you can explain the rules just like I did to everybody that's playing in a couple seconds and get on with the game. What I really like, though, is you end up actually having relevant discussions about preparedness during this game, because that's what the game is. It's a discussion of preparedness. It does take you to the edge. You are to assume in all these scenarios, it is the end of the world as we know it, the apocalypse. Dogs and cats are breeding together and making puppy kittens. It is the end. But that forces you, that forces you to look deeply into these scenarios and not simply gloss over your answer. And let me tell you, when I read some of the scenarios, I thought this might be interesting. It is different answering what would you do when there's four or five other people sitting around you critiquing and discussing what you would do. It makes it more real. It puts you more in the moment. And it's not so easy to say, oh, I'd just shoot him. It's not so easy because it makes it real. Check it out. It's from Survival Logics is the company that makes it. You'll find it at conflictedthegame.com. Use the link in today's show notes. And MSB members, 20% off a deck. And I think it's uh, like 13 or 14 bucks a deck. So $13.95 or $14.95 a deck. So it's a good discount, but it's not a high-priced game. There's two versions of the game now, two decks. Call one an expansion pack, I guess you would say. Um, but they just released the second deck. I haven't seen it yet. I'm waiting for mine to come in the mail. Personally, I'd order them both. I'm going to tell you right now, if you like preparedness and you like gaming at all in any way, you're going to like this. Anyway, that's a great reason to join the Member Support Brigade. You get discounts from Bulk Ammo, Ready Made Resources, Conflicted, the Survival Card Game, about 40 other companies. You get over $150 worth of free ebooks. You get access to the MSB only videos. You get every episode ever put together of the Survival Podcast and convenient zip files, all 1,200 plus of them. Check it out. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, and first responders like EMTs paramedics, and firefighters. All of you qualify for a service discount to thank you for your service. And uh, if you email me before, not after you join, put service discount in the subject line. I'll send you the discount code to save you even more money on an already great deal. 
And uh, the email to reach me for shows like today with question for Jack or for your service discount or for any reason at all, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. The the or the the in survival podcast is very important. If you leave it out, I will not get your email. I do not have a secret email. I do not have an email screener. I answer all my e own email at me e email. If you email me and you don't hear back, it either means I couldn't get back to you or you went into the trash folder and I didn't find it. With that, I'm ready to get into the main show today. Let's start off with our history segment. The year is 1298. I will tell you a true story, and I will tell you the origin of a fairy tale, legend, whatever you want to call it, that I'm sure you've heard before. William Tell and the One-Eyed King of the Romans. Albert the One-Eyed has been biding his time, and in the Battle of Golhin, he seizes his chance racing his horse through the throng and piercing Adolf of Nassau, Nassau Wheelberg with a bollock knife. Yes, bollock is in balls, and yes, those kind of balls. More on that in a second. Albert I of Halsburg will claim the title King of the Romans. He will rule reasonably well, listening to the peasants and abolishing the tolls the church has imposed on commerce along the Rhine. However, the legend will grow of a Swiss man named William Tell, who objects to King Albert's bailiff named Gressler. Gressler forces William Tell to shoot an apple off of Tell's, the head of Tell's son. Tell succeeds and then kills Gessler, thus spawning the legend. Is the William Tell story true? There is not a shred of evidence, but the story will become popular during the restoration of the Swiss Confederacy after the Napoleonic Wars. My take by Alex Shrugged. Of course, Alex Shrugged is the guy that puts these wonderful history segments together for us at tspwiki.com. King Albert I was the original choice to succeed his father, but the nobleman elected Adolf instead. Since Albert had proven himself as a good ruler of Austria, he was the Duke of Austria, by the way, guys. Uh, maybe he was too good, or maybe the nobleman feared another Count Floris V of Holland, who had done so well by giving peasants some freedoms and a reduction in taxes. So basically... You know, kings were elected at the time, but elected by the nobility. So the nobility picked the guy that was, they picked their guy. And the guy that was supposed to have the job eventually whacks their guy and becomes the head of the country. And even though he's not above whacking a guy and killing him, he actually does a pretty good job of ruling on behalf of the people. And this is what I was talking about before. Like, I don't think monarchy is a great idea or anything, but people in a monarchy at least have a fair shake once in a while to get a good monarch. That really won't screw them over. It seems like kind of what happened here. A um, couple things that we need to talk about. What is King of the Romans? It's basically King of Germany at this time. Just so you, you kind of follow that. And part of Switzerland anyway was was taken in by Germany during this time. So um, the Swiss legend is that you know even though this Albert the One Eye, he was kind of gruesome looking with one eye. Um, ended up being pretty a good guy. He was still like an occupier, and eventually there was a need to break free and restore the, the Swiss Confederacy. And uh, so William Tell was part of that kind of lineage and story, and we learned a lot from that. Well, what about Bollock Knife? That sounds like, did he did he actually charge in and like stab this guy in the balls? No, Bollock Knife is also known as is sometimes called a Scottish Dirk. It's a dagger with the hilt having balls on the hilt, two rounded areas. So it's actually that the knife looks like, well, it looks kind of phallic. But he probably stabbed him in the chest or the throat or upper chest cavity or something. doesn't say here, but uh, my take on this, 
My take on this is that people have always fought for power over other people. And that if we're ever going to get past the ancient paradigms, we have to look at a point where instead of looking to politicians as our rulers, we look to ourselves in leading ourselves. Anyway, with that, uh, remember, you can always find out everything about the year that we thought was cool, tspwiki.com, and look at our history segment, 1298. There will be a link in today's show notes. And with that, let's get into the real main topic of today's show. I went a little longer at the beginning. Sorry, but had a lot going on with a new discount vendor. It's always exciting when we have one of those. I'm going to start out with something I've been getting tons of emails and questions about for a long time now because... We were heading one way with it. Now we shifted another way with it. What are we going to do? And I'm talking about permaethos. So I'm not responding to a single email. I'm kind of responding to the general community of email and text and Facebook messages and blog comments all about permaethos. And I'm going to do an abbreviated version today. And I'm going to ask the community here for some help. And I'm going to do probably about an hour of audio on my vision for where permaethos is going either today or tomorrow, and put that up at Permaethos so I do not turn the Survival Podcast into the Permaethos infomercial hour, which I promised you guys from day one. So here's the basic concept. Permaethos originally was designed to be a community. We are going to buy a piece of land. We're going to have people come in, lease an acre, build a house on it, live there, everything's hunky-dory, avoid subdivisions and all. And in our research, the cost and the complexity necessary to go in and do this right now makes it cost prohibitive for us, especially not having a track record of any kind of development at all that we can go into a county and say, hey, look, here's what we've done, at least on a small scale. This is how we'd like to do it on a big scale. We need some variances in how we do this because it's not your typical subdivision. Um, and how we're going to do the community eventually, I won't get bogged down in. I'll just tell you it's not going away. It's just not now. Okay, so it's not no community, it's not community now. Now, Permaethos is going to be about the development of self-replicating, open-source, voluntary association permaculture farms. The basic principle of a Permaethos farm will be we take no government money, no subsidies, and no government grants. If some private organization has a grant that's available and we want to apply for it, we'll do that because the people have voluntarily Put money into that grant. We will not take a dime of taxpayer money at a permaethos farm, period. We will take all the deductions that we can. We'll get all the exemptions we can, but that's about us not giving them money, not them giving us money. We will not use other people's money on a permaethos farm unless that person has said, here it is, use it, and this is what you can use it for. Voluntary association. Um, number two, everything a permaethos farm does will be completely open source. Any technologies we develop, any techniques we develop, nothing will be hidden. So if a competitor wants to take it and go out and replicate it and call it something else, Godspeed, go ahead. They won't get a direct support from Permaethos in us marketing and helping them raise funds or whatever, but they can do whatever they want to with it, including the person who wants to do it in their own backyard. No, So it's open source. We're targeting farms in the range of 40 to 80 acres. If we find more for the right price, fine. If not... Whatever. We want agriculturally zoned land. That way no one can say crap about us starting to farm on it because it's land that's already used for farming. We're looking for a place close enough to Dallas that I can provide my oversight. It's basically the CEO of Permaethos, Inc. Um, we'll put a tenant farmer in place, uh, basically a farm steward in place, a head farmer. 
Uh, in this case, this will be because I've been tutoring him now for like seven months and will continue to do so until early this, this late this spring, early this summer, Josiah Wallingford, who I have complete confidence in to do that job. Beneath Josiah, we'll put in two tenant farmers, which will be people that will be there on a one-year minimum commitment with a small stipend, and we're going to organize it so they're doing a farm-to-farm -farm lease. So they're actually paid more than their stipend, but they pay most of it back as a farm-to-farm -farm lease. So they can establish credit to buy an agricultural property of their own if they want to do it outside the perma-ethos umbrella in the future, or hopefully we're training the, 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 the next farm steward to develop the next perma-ethos farm with the full support of the perma-ethos community. All right? The way that this is going to be funded is I'm going to ask you to help me do it. I'm going to sell, I don't know if we're going to call it memberships, I don't know if we're going to call it common stock, and I'll get to why in a, in a minute, but at $500 a share. And if you want to buy 10 shares, fine. Founders, which would be myself and Josiah and maybe another person or two, will have a certain reserve amount of shares that we can buy at a discounted rate of 20% of face value. That means we can buy our shares for $100 a share. I'm going to have a minimum amount of money I have to put in, And that way, there's an upside for ownership that are taking the bigger risk on going in. All right, I'm going to tell you it's a risk-based venture when we launch it and say, if you can't afford to lose your money, don't put it in. We'll be the best stewards we can. We'll tell you everything we're going to do. But this is not, hey, if you invest in this, you're going to get rich. Psh, far from it. If you get 100% of your money back in 10 years, I would call it good. Okay? But if you continue to get money back after that, then I would call it a pretty good return of investment. And my hope would be that we can do better than that. The farm will be run as a for-profit venture. The profit from the farm will be used to continue funding the ongoing uh, operations of the farm. The other things that the farm will do um, includes providing materials and a blueprint for the next farm. So the first one probably won't get off the ground as quick as the second one, the third one, the fourth one, the fifth one, because it's going to make more of the mistakes. But the beauty is anybody that wants to be part of it can be part of it. We'll also have accommodations that we'll set up for woofers. And we'll pay our farm steward a living wage, probably 25 k a year, plus we pay the expenses for the property. So that's, that, that's the... The rent on the property, or not the rent on the property, the electrical bills and things like that, all the utilities for the, the tenant farmers and the, uh, and the, and the, uh, the head farmer. All right? um, and that's about it. The profit then will go into two buckets. One bucket will be used to incentivize the tenant farmers and the farm steward with a bonus schedule. So the more money they make for the farm, the more they make over their, their, their base wage. Okay? The other portion will be declared basically as a profit to be distributed to the members slash shareholders as a dividend. So at the end of the first year, it probably amounts to nothing. At the end of the second year, there may be a legitimate profit for distribution. There may not. It all depends on how things go. I'm not overselling this, and I have no intention of doing so. But if you want a permaculture farm to really exist, and you want to prove that it can be done. And if we can make one work, how many can we make work? That's, that's the beauty of this. Once we have the proven schematic, basically, and again, this is all open source, so somebody can come do it with us, or they can take the schematic and go modify it. Consider it like Linux in permaculture. Here it is. Here's everything we're doing. We grafted this to that. It didn't work. We grafted this to this. It did work. This is how we germinated this seed. This is how we were able to grow coffee in the middle of North Texas. right? This is exactly how we did it. This is how we tried it and it failed, and we tried it and it failed, and when we tried it and it worked. This was how everything you know, wide open. 
Here is here's what I think we're we're on on the cusp of here. I don't think it'll be ha too hard to raise the money. I think there's enough of you out there that'll want to be part of this, and I'm going to put out kind of a a new survey form to gauge the market interest because we're looking at we're going to have to raise somewhere between four hundred and five hundred thousand dollars to do this, to do this right. And the reason we have to raise that kind of money is I don't want a mortgage on the farm, debt free, right from the beginning. And that gives us amazing negotiating power. There's a lot of properties available that will work for this right now. To walk into a guy that's asking 300 grand for his farm and go, we'll give you 270 tomorrow morning in a check with nothing else. All right. So the debt freedom protects the investor. So there's no there's no way to lose the farm, so to speak. And what happens then? Let's say the whole thing becomes a two year catastrophic failure, crashes and burns at the end of two years. And we're just sitting there with a with a farm that's been vastly increased in value. We can put it up for market, we can sell it, and we can divide the proceeds back among the investors. I'm not saying you'd get all your money back, but you'd get some, based on how much you put in. With certain provisions that my initial money, I would take 100% loss. I'd get nothing, and I'm okay with that. If I'm not willing to do that, I shouldn't ask you to participate. So that's the basics. Here's the two things that I need out of this audience right now. I don't need your money. I don't need you telling me you want to sign up. I need an attorney that can draw up a contract or a shareholders agreement or what have you and help us with the corporate filing for Perma Ethos Inc. And I need that attorney to be a Texas attorney. I need someone that's willing to work kind of on the low end or maybe for a few shares initially to get everything set up right. And then you will be our attorney. And if we need any kind of legal assistance, we will commit to bringing the business to you first. But I need somebody to do that because I need to look at something very, very, and I need a CPA, same kind of deal. Hopefully a Texas CPA. Here's my concern. This is my, I have gone over this with a fine tooth comb. Joe and I have whiteboarded about 16 times. We've run numbers. We know we can make it work. My one concern is not being beaten up by the federal government for income taxes or some type of abuse of shareholders. I know a law was passed in 2012 that made raising funds from the private citizens totally legal. That's why Indiegogo and, and things like that are all going on right now. But if we collect a half a million dollars and we put it into Perma Ethos Inc., turn around and buy a house with it for $280,000, That $280,000 is not an expense. It's the acquisition of an asset. That means it could create a tax on the half million dollars as 100% income. So I need to know how we can capitalize that money or most of that money is business funding versus income so that we do not get dinged for a tax bill on it and lose 40% of the fund, the, the fund raised money from the get-go when we need the money to go into the farm, improvements, operations, plants, etc. Okay? That's, so I need help from a CPA and an attorney, and I think I need a team, a CPA and an attorney, located in Texas, that understand what we're doing and want to help with this. That's what I need now. I don't need anything else right now. I will give you all the details I can on permaethos.com, off of TSP, Very, very soon, today or tomorrow, my commitment to you, okay? So please hold your questions until I do that about anything other than this. I need an attorney and a CPA, and be excited about this, though. Be excited about this. This is, in some ways, better than the community model. It circumvents a million problems. 
And if we can find the right property and we can get it into a working model and we can make it profitable in two years, we can put a small community on this property of, I don't know, 10, 15 people as a sample development and at the same time be building other farms. I think we can build 10 farms in five years minimum, minimum. I think we can build 10 farms in three years if we hit a home run out of the gate and hopefully have a several small communities developed and then be able to go into different counties and instead of going, will you please let us do this? Go, this is what we do. We would like to now take it to a grander scheme. We are talking to this county, this county, this county, and that county. We want to know who would like us to bring this to their county and flip it around. I'm pretty good at what I do. And I know how to manipulate systems when I have to. This is the way I can make this happen now. That's it. We're going forward on to something else. I want to talk real quick about Bitcoin. I'm not going to turn this into the Bitcoin infomercial either, but there's a lot of crap going on about Bitcoin right now that I want to address. First, I'm getting email after email of all negative, horrible things about Bitcoin and how it's going to die, and this happened here, and that happened there, and the Russians made it illegal, and Bitcoin is crashing, and ah! And what did I tell you right before I said I'm all in on Bitcoin? One week before I said that, I said, get ready for the full court press. I said they are going to slander it. They are going to attack it. They are going to do everything they can to put it to death because they're scared of it. So what you should take from that is there is nothing that I'm seeing right now that I'm like, wow, I didn't really expect that. But let's talk about a few. The big news this weekend is Russia has banned Bitcoin. Actually, no, what Russia did... Russia formally recognized Bitcoin as a currency. It's not spin, it's the truth. Russia did not pass a law to ban Bitcoin this week. Russia did, took no legislative or legal action other than issuing a letter saying that Bitcoin was illegal. If you read the articles, you'll see that. Okay, The letter that says, don't do it, it's illegal, cites a 2002 law from Russia, that had already made any competing currency in Russia illegal. Unlike the United States, where we have a legal tender law that simply says, if I advertise prices in dollars, I have to take paper money and coin in, in, in denominations. I have to take that in response to my offer. We have no law that prevents having a competing currency in the United States. Russia has a law that specifically says no competing currencies. It was passed in 2002, before Bitcoin ever was. Russia, looking at Bitcoin, going, what do we do about this? What do we do about this? Went, aha, we have a law that already says they can't do this. If the Bitcoin community is smart, what they're going to say is, we are now officially recognized as a currency by a nation that doesn't want us. Because by citing that law, they have officially recognized Bitcoin as a currency and said it cannot trade in Russia because it's a competing currency. So it's nothing but a capital control. Uh, there's an exchange in Japan that basically said, there's a flaw in Bitcoin that we just found out about, and we're like not letting our people uh, transfer their Bitcoins to external wallets until, until we're satisfied that things are, are better. I can't remember the name of these people, but they're a bunch of ass clowns. The, the flaw is something that's being worked on. It's nowhere near as bad as they say it was, and it was totally released to the public, and it's been totally discussed in public since 2011. Now, my assertion on looking at this company is here's what they're doing. They're in deep shit because they're damn near insolvent from what I can find out about them. And they now have an opportunity to use manipulation to drive the price of Bitcoin down. 
and hold all of their depositors hostage under the guise of protecting them, uh, and then use whatever money they can scrape up to buy a bunch more Bitcoin, and then come out in a couple weeks and go, huh, you know what, that's not really a problem at all. Everything's back to normal and watch the price drive up. Uh, what, what is the name of these idiots? Gox, Gox, oh, Mount Gox, Mount Gox in Japan. If you look these guys up, you'll see that people have hated this, this exchange in Japan for a long time anyway. That's what I think is going on there. Now let's address Bitcoin is crashing. Just a few years ago, Bitcoin was under a dollar a Bitcoin. And today it's sitting in the $600 range, six $700 range. Um, that does not a crash make. Just because it was higher at one point does not make it a crash. Bitcoin is going to ping up and down like a ping pong ball for a long time to come. It's going to go down, it's going to go up, it's going to go down, it's going to go up. Woohoo, boo, woohoo, boo. This is how it's going to work. Right now, the, there is a tremendous amount of trading because people are making a lot of money on it going up and down. They're buying lows and, and, they're, and they're selling on highs. And it is subject to manipulation. Anybody that says Bitcoin's not subject to manipulation in value is, is smoking crack. Of course it is. There is so much confusion about it. But it's, it, right now, it's, it's big sellers and big buyers that are causing the manipulation. And when an exchange comes out and says, oh, there's a problem, like it's something new, right after, strategically right after Russia does this, hey. So, again, I just want to make a position on Bitcoin clear. I am not saying, liquidate your bank accounts, put all your money in Bitcoin. I think if you do that, you are a moron. Um, for instance, what I'm doing with Permaethos, would I take your money... And hold it in Bitcoin until we find a property. No, because it could get dropped by 30 or 40% in value in that time. It could also go up by 30% in value. I'm not betting on it either way. This is something you put a few hundred to a few thousand dollars into and you use it. You use it to buy stuff. And if you sell stuff, you receive it. And then you use it to buy other stuff. And if you receive it and you don't want to, and you receive quite a bit of it, Because you are in a business that does enough business uh, that would go into Bitcoin that you get in quite a bit of money a month for it and you don't want it at risk, you convert it to dollars and put it in your bank account. But you are part of this other economy, the second economy, outside of the elites. And you watch it and you pay attention to it. And as it stabilizes, because more and more people begin to use it, the more you can stay in Bitcoin. But you have to be smart about it. You cannot be a retard about this. And you stop worrying every time. If you're going to freak out every time somebody says something bad about Bitcoin, don't put one penny in it. You are not ready yet. Because you should be putting money in Bitcoin right now that if Bitcoin went down to a dollar, you'd go, huh, okay. You, you should be like, oh my God, I've, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills this month. Do not do that. And don't put money like that into silver or gold either. All this crap about, well, it can never go anywhere but up. Have you seen a silver chart lately? Have you seen a gold chart lately? These are all commodities. And they are all currencies that are used as commodities. And commodities that are used as currencies. It is not magic. But it is something that exists outside of the control of government and big banks. And they are attacking it. Now I just heard on Persons of Interest which is the biggest conspiracy show in the world to condition you to have cameras on you. If you've never seen this show, the whole concept is there's a machine that attaches to all the cameras and helps predict crimes. And there's two really good guys who, who, who fix all the crimes that the government doesn't consider important enough because the government's just worried about major terrorism. 
Well, apparently in one of these recent episodes, Bitcoin, they, they found the guy that actually created it, and it was made for the drug cartels. That's its explicit purpose. Of course they're going to attack it. I told you they're going to attack it. Don't worry about it. If you have enough money into, in it to worry about it, take some of your money out of it. Though I don't know that I would do that right now if you paid 800 bucks a coin for it. Um, I'm telling you, watch the bounce. Boy, this thing has a hard floor. If you look at a chart, you see that there is a, a real uh, tendency for this thing to bounce in a six to seven hundred dollar range. A really, really hard floor in this. Oh, Porter Stanberry is uh, is doing his nonsense too. Millionaires all over the country are catching in their bitcoins. There's not millionaires all over the country that have Bitcoin. It's not that accepted yet. There's only 12, 12.5 million Bitcoins in existence. There will only ever be 20 million. And if you start doing the math and think about what happens, if the Bitcoin economy is just 10 million users worldwide, and there's only two Bitcoins per person, and an active economy of that size, you'll stop worrying. Anyway, let's go on to another thing from the audience. And we'll shift gears with this. This is from Jason. Jason says, Hi, Jack. This is Jason in North Carolina. I wanted your input concerning voting. Is it even worth doing at all? For a while now, I've been aligned with much of your view on government and politics. That is, I don't seek government solutions, nor do I try to fix the system. I'm just seeking to ever distance myself from it and make my own life and solutions with my family and community. Good for you, Jason. So I feel no need to even vote, and if I did, uh, if I did, the ballot would be pretty blank, or maybe just say no to all new measures and blank for new politicians. Or maybe I will stop showing up altogether. This is tough because of how I was raised. My grandfather and parents used to teach me how important voting is, even if you hate the system. I'm not sure they would still agree. Any thoughts, Jason? Um, let's start out with something very important that you said there. Whenever you bring the subject up and people get really upset and angry and gnash their teeth and... Ah! going to die if everybody thinks like this why do you think voting is so important okay now before you're yelling at your iphone or your computer or whatever hold on i want you to really answer that question i don't want you to answer it with because it's important that we're part of a system or because we have to take if we don't they'll take our freedoms away or whatever i don't i don't want you to go there i want you to ask yourself Why do you personally believe that voting is important if you do from a standpoint of what made you feel that way in the first place? I mean, would you walking around like, huh, it doesn't matter if I vote at all or ever, man. And one day you like saw a ballot and realized, oh, this issue is important. I better be involved. Or did you ever like actually see Like one or two people vote that wouldn't have and actually swing a measure one way. Or was it what Jason says and that you were raised and taught that it was true? Now, again, I want you to just separate yourself from a moment from the conclusion. Just what, what is the seed of the belief? Because the seed of the belief often leads us to be able to actually critically analyze the belief without dogma if we'll look at the seed. And the seed of the belief is you were told it was important in school, and you were probably told it was important by family members. And this was probably done at the most uh, critical developmental period in your life when you still had something that you probably don't have a lot of anymore, trust. When you are eight or nine or ten, 
in general, not everybody, but in general, you are dramatically trusting of parents and teachers and grandparents and uncles, etc. You're actually dramatically trusting of anyone who appears to be nice and actually cares about you. It's the, the wonderful trust of a child. Okay? So, when you're told it's important, you are now, you're having your synapses formed at this point in your development. You're making permanent mental acuity adjustments at this point in your development. And if you're told that enough times and you take it in enough times, it becomes so true that you will defend it no matter what. No matter what evidence is presented to you, you'll defend it. If you were presented right now, for instance, with evidence that the color of the sky is not blue, it is orange. And the color of an orange is not orange, it's blue. In fact, we don't even call it an orange, we call it a blue. That society played a practical joke on you. That everything you've ever read and seen has been altered. And if somebody could show you conclusively this occurred, it was like the Truman Show, and you were Truman, you would still have a very hard time accepting orange is blue and blue is orange. It would, it would some, for some people, it would be impossible. And that's, that's out there. That's too ridiculous. So when you bring it down to something more basal, like every child should go to college, right, and voting is important, then it's much harder to, to, to let go of the seed. So then I want you now, everybody that thinks this is really important, let go of the seed of the belief for a moment. And say to yourself, not voting is important because. Actually say to yourself, why is voting important and how can I prove that it is? The first thing I'd tell you is if you can't show me a place where one vote mattered, then one vote doesn't matter. Now, a thousand votes might matter. And if a thousand people all take the attitude of I'm out, then each one of those votes mattered and never got counted. So you can make a case for it. Can you make a case for it in federal elections? The elections of federal congressmen, federal senators, and the presidents of the United States. And the answer is you cannot. These races are generally won by such margins that even if a thousand people stayed out of a senatorial race or a million out of a presidential race, it wouldn't change the outcome. It wouldn't change the outcome. And... Even if you did change the outcome, you wouldn't get that dramatically different of a result. Those of you who still believe if Mitt Romney was president right now, the nation would be in any way better off. Your, your freedoms would be any less trampled on at all. You're delusional. Mitt Romney would have brought you the IRA just like Obama did because it's neither one of their ideas. It's, it's, it was, that's why I was able to tell you it was coming before the election happened. Hello? Okay? You got it? Because it's not Obama's. It's the system. So to me, when we look at do we vote for federal office, no. It doesn't because it doesn't matter and it's not worth doing. So I'm pretty confident saying that right now. And if you ever show me a place where I actually believe in one of the candidates and the margin is going to be close enough that, that I don't know half a million would make a difference. Okay, then maybe we can revisit it. Until such time, no. Then it begets the question, is there ever a time where voting makes sense? To me, there is. If my state were to, in its infinite wisdom, let go of its you know, Bible Belt philosophy enough to realize that criminalizing a plant is the antithesis of liberty. 
Making marijuana illegal is just not con con conclusive. It's just not conducive with the Constitution of the United States. There is no. I actually believe I agree with Barack Obama on this. You cannot make a case that marijuana is any more dangerous than alcohol. You can't. In fact, I can tell you. I can make a case. Definitely make a case. Alcohol misused is more dangerous than marijuana. Alcohol poisoning happens. There are people that die. I bet you there's more than one person a day dead in the United States from alcohol poisoning. I don't mean cirrhosis of the liver and I mean overdrank, overdosed, today, was there was no reason for them to be dead tomorrow. Now they're dead because of an overdose. There is no such thing as an overdose of marijuana. It does not exist, it does not happen. So there's no case to be made for it. I don't smoke marijuana, I don't think you should either. Okay? Just to be clear. But I think criminalizing a plant is dangerous to liberty which is the exact opposite of what Texas Senator Ted Cruz, the Tea Party's champion, just said that the federal government not stamping on Colorado's right to decriminalize marijuana is dangerous to liberty. Ted Cruz, you should be kicked in the freaking ass. This is what I'm saying. These people that say they're for your freedom are not for your freedom. They're for your freedom under their definition of what freedom means. This is totally, totally nonsense that we've made a plant illegal. Well, I don't want my kids to, to have it. Then you worry about your kids and let me worry about my kids. Don't trust the government with your kids. The government's going to tell you, we need these laws to keep drugs out of schools. They can't keep drugs out of prison. Surrounded by fences, alarms, 24-hour surveillance, guards, inspections of everything that goes in, inspections of everything that goes out, Severe, serious penalty when somebody's caught. They go in the hole for weeks alone, solitary confinement, human abuse for drugs, right, by the system, and they can't keep drugs out of the prison, and they're going to tell you to your face they're going to keep them out of your school with a law? You are out of your freaking mind if you believe that. So if my state had on the ballot a measure to decriminalize marijuana, and I thought it had any chance in the world of passing I would show up to vote for that measure. If my city decided, you know what would be a great idea? It would be a great idea if we just borrowed $50 million in bonds, and we didn't call it debt, we called it a bond initiative, and we told everybody you could have all these wonderful things, and your taxes won't go up, and we sold it to them on that, I would probably show up to vote no for that. That actually matters. If that is defeated, or if the, the, the first one it passes, it actually matters. Because it's not who's in charge of your life, it's let's remove this obstacle from liberty, period. The end, it's gone. It's not there anymore. So I, those, are like, those are the only examples of when I'll vote. Now I've heard from some people that say in certain elections, they don't count the votes... Unless you vote for everything. Whoever's running those elections needs a serious ass-kicking. I, 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 I mean that. I mean, needs is a deep need of an ass-kicking. How the hell are you going to tell a citizen of this country you don't get to vote for anything Unless you vote for everything. And in that case, I would say, if I had that choice, I'd really hope that there was an L on the ballot for libertarian straight ticket. And I'd check that. I don't want to. I'll tell you why I don't want to. I don't think that matters right now either.
I, I really think we're at a point where politics is no longer the answer. And only a complete deconstruction of government will solve our problems. And it ain't going to happen right now, so I'm going to go on about my life. But if I have the option to decriminalize something that's not going to be criminal, or to prevent further debt, or to, to vote on a meaningful, cut-and-dry, black-and-white issue, can we do this? Uh, constitutional amendments, repealing constitutional amendments, anything like that, that I would show up for. That's about it. Because I don't believe it's going to matter otherwise. And if you tell me it does... Prove it. If you want to hear somebody else's take on this, who is even more radical than I am, Stefan Molyneux would be the guy. Um, he's got a pretty good uh, little YouTube piece, about 13 minutes, called The Truth About Voting. And I'll have a link in today's show notes for you so you can learn more about it. But if you are still of the opinion that it's very important that we do our civic duty and that we vote, I want you to prove it to me. I don't want you to give me big, beautiful words about personal responsibility and liberty. and I want you to conclusively, with numbers, and since we count votes mathematically, with numbers, conclusively prove to me that your vote matters by showing me where it would have mattered if I had voted when I didn't. Okay, And if there were 10,000 people, I'll give you up to 10,000 people on a national level election, that if I would have voted and those other 9,999 would have all voted the same way that it would have mattered. And here's the truth. Even if you find it, if you find a thread-of-the-needle election, those 10,000 people would not have voted the same way. You have no reason to believe they would have voted for the person you think they should have voted for, and they probably would not have. There are just as many people that are predisposed to vote Democrat while opting out as there are predisposed to vote Republican, as there are predisposed to vote Libertarian. And you idiots that say do not waste your vote on a third party, like voting Libertarian or Constitutionalist, you're also presupposing that the person that still chooses to vote, shows up and votes for the Libertarian Party, would have voted for, for you, and most of you that think that are Republicans. Do not think, do not think for one minute that true Libertarians in any way, support anything at all about the Republican agenda at all, because they do not. There are parts of the platform of libertarianism that line up with the Republican message of marketing. There are no parts of the Republican platform of actions that line up with the libertarian philosophy of belief. We are not you. And I'm speaking to mainstream, full-on, active Republicans. The, we libertarians are not you. We're not just like you, except for a few issues. No, we're not going to expose our. Li, we're not going to espouse our libertarian ideals within the Republican uh, Party because you're not worthy of what we're trying to accomplish. You're just as bad as the Democrats. Just as bad. So no, I won't vote unless there's a clear-cut, absolute reality that if what I'm voting for, passing or failing, is actually going to change things. And putting the different clown into a congressional suit or the different talking head behind the desk of the White House is not going to do that right now. We had an opportunity with the presidency to do something that would have mattered. It would have been perfect, but it would have mattered. 
It would have changed a lot. There's only one person that's won for president in the past two elections that actually would have made a difference. And his name was Ron Paul. And you can say whatever you want about conspiracies, but the truth is the people of America rejected the Ron Paul message of liberty and freedom. The people of America are right now not worthy of liberty and freedom because they refuse to claim it. They refuse to claim it. They refuse to take it back because both sides of the aisle are sucking on the big old government tit. And if I vote for that, I'm just voting for which side of the tit gets fatter. I'm not interested in that. I have too much to do, like building communities, building permaculture farms, helping people reclaim their actual liberty for themselves. There is no point, 99% of the time, to punching a ballot, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure some of you will disagree. I respect your, your view, but I do not share it. Once again, shifting gears to something totally different, sort of, kind of. Um, <laughs> this is uh, from Joe. Joe says, um, you said it yourself, and that you hate your, to be right, but you look like you were again. The trap has been sprung. This is the way government is going to start claw, clawing their way into investment accounts and IRAs and force us to buy more government debt in the form of treasury bonds. This article is great in highlighting what's coming. And the title of this article is on Money Morning, and it's called Prepare Now for When the New My RA Becomes Their RA. Um, it's a pretty good article, but I'm going to summarize it really, really quickly what this guy's point is. This guy's point is you're going to put money into these things, and um, you can do this for people earning up to 120. Now, see, here's the thing. They said this was for low-income people. They already lied. This is the big thing that I got out of this article. The way the, the, the legislation is starting to look is now it's being formed up and the whole thing's being rolled out and Obama signed it and it's going to come in. You can, you can do this if you earn up to $129,000. So the whole thing that was for lower income people is bullshit and a couple can do it earning up to $191,000. As long as your employer offers the account. You have to contribute $25 initially and then at least $5 through payroll deductions per payroll period. Which could be $2.50 a week if I, if I read that right. Um, I thought it was $5 a week, but it seems like it's per payroll period. Uh, maximum contribution is $5,500 a year, and you can do $6,500 a year if you're over a certain age. Once the balance reaches fifteen grand or has existed for 30 years, it must be rolled into a Roth IRA. I'm not sure that's the case. For, maybe This guy seems like he's got his stuff together, so maybe that's right. Um, but the way I read it... What it actually seemed like is when it hits that, you can roll it into a Roth IRA. Not that they would care. But here's his premise. Right now, you can open up a Roth IRA if you want to at, with no minimum balance. And your, your options to invest are unlimited. They're not, though. This actually, the truth is, you can't really buy much at a $5 a, a, a week investment into an IRA. You can't just like pick like uh, a Ford Motor Company and buy five dollars in Ford stock, right? Or uh, or Merck or Pfizer or uh, uh, you know a uh, uh, Dow Index fund at five dollars a week. There are some minimums to actually be able to have the money allocated into certain investments, which is meaningless in some ways. But it, I don't think that's really the important part here. What his point is is that the interest on these bonds is about two and a half percent right now. The real inflation is about 5%. So by putting your money into the MIRA, 
that the government basically is making 2.5% on your money because the inflation's eating it away. So they're going to pay you back in the future with less powerful dollars. This is nothing but an inflation game. And it's designed, and the big thing is that it is, and this is where he gets it totally right, it's designed to turn the American people into the next big lender to the United States government. And with it going up to $129,000, I'll tell you what, this is what's going to happen. This is this year. This year this is going to happen. Right now, it, this is available for people that don't have a 401k. They're going to say, you know what, they're not, it's not, they're not even doing the class warfare. I'm going to tell you right now, they're going to let people with 401ks have this too. They are. And, and the, the truth is there's so many part-time workers because of Obamacare that this is going to be their only option because they're not going to have 401s. They're not going to qualify for full benefits, and the government's going to tell employers, look, we understand that you have a certain benefits package and stuff, and a person has to be a full-time employee to get it. We understand that. That's okay. The whole system's set up that way. Um, and we understand that you have a 401k, And, but that's for your full-time employees only because there's a cost to administer that plan. There's no cost to administer the MIRA plan. All you have to do is give them a form and let them fill it out. We take it from there. We manage everything, and they can't lose. And why wouldn't you? They're gonna do, they're gonna, you're going to be able to do this plus a 401. Because they want, this is not about encouraging savings. They want the money. This is as good as tax to them. Do you understand this? That if they can get... $50 billion dollars a year in this thing, it's as good as $50 billion in new taxes. It's the same thing to them. Because they're not going to pay it back for a long time. And they're going to earn a return on your money while they hold it. And they don't care about paying it back anyway, because they'll just print money to pay it back with and further devalue it. A government, when the government sells you a bond... They are every bit as happy as when they tax you. You've now imposed it. All you're doing with this, to tell you the truth, when you, when you buy U.S. government bonds today, you are imposing a tax on your children and your grandchildren. That's all you're doing. You're giving them money so that your grandchildren can pay you back. And it's going to work. People are going to buy into this. There's going to be people that are going to look at 401ks and this, and they're going to choose this one over 401ks. They are going to do mandatory enrollments on this program. They are abs I, I, You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm ramping it up. I'm saying this year. By the end of this year, they'll have incentives for companies that mandatorily enroll their employees in this. And it, they will not, it will not be mandatory. It will be pseudo-mandatory. You will be able to opt out. That's how they're going to get it done. But they know full well the average person won't do it. Full well. They will do a full court press. They will send clowns to companies all over the country telling you what a great deal this is. By the end of this year, my IRA will be fully implemented. And going into 2015, there will be countless employers that will automatically enroll at least all new employees in it, if not all existing employees in it. And the only way to avoid it will be opting out. And it is about seeding the government with money. The $129,000 limit. Do you consider a person who makes $129,000 a year low income? 
I'll tell you what. There's a lot of people out there who've never made that much money in their life, and they think that if you make 129 grand a year, buddy, you got it made. You're driving around a convertible with the latest cell phone every other week. Your kids can go to private school. That it's just making 130,000 a year. It ain't what it used to be. Let me tell you that. I bet you my dad did better making 14 bucks an hour in the early 70s working construction and getting overtime than a person making 129 a year does right now. But it ain't low income. And when they say lower income Americans that are not saving for retirement, that is not who you're thinking of. That's a solid, solid middle class to upper middle class income. It really is. So right out of the gate, it's a lie. It's a trap, right? It is a trap. But it's a benign trap. It won't kill you. It won't kill you. And here's what they, here's what they know. They say that once you hit $15,000, you have to roll it into an IRA. Do you think they're going to enforce that? Do you think they're going to enforce that? Whether the law says you have to or not, here's what I'm, here's what I'm saying. Do you think they're going to enforce that? Why would they? Remember, when you buy a bond, they're as happy as if you pay a tax. Imagine if you were borrowing money from someone and you knew you never had to pay it back. You knew that by the time that bill came due, it would be somebody else's problem. And you were a person more interested in power than ethics. Would you care if you got the money from a tax or a loan? You don't have to balance the books. You don't have to write the check. You don't even have to worry about this debt for 30 years on average. Now, as long as our politicians stay in office, some of them might be around for that. Maybe. But they'll be old and senile and screaming and yelling about tubes and the tubes being full. They won't care then anyway because they're still not going to pay the bill. But the majority of people, especially at upper echelon levels of government, implementing a plan like this are going to probably be around for somewhere between four years if you're the president in your second term and 10 to 20 years at the longest term. All you're doing is setting up a bunch of money that you can spend without ever having to worry about paying it back. That's what my RA is. And I, again, I'm ramping it up. I'm saying by going in, by the end of this year and going into the next tax year, fully impl full implementation of my RA, widespread acceptance, people thinking once they understand it, it's a really good thing. And leading up to the presidential election in 2016, even a right-wing hacks, backdoor issue, they'll give it a pass. They'll say, I wouldn't put my money there, but if you want to, go ahead. It ain't going to really hurt nothing. You want to lay odds on this, guys? Jack at the survivalpodcast.com is the email. Tell me your wager, a case of beer, or whatever you want to do. Uh, I'll take all comers on that one. Let's go ahead and take another one. I'm going to cover this one quickly. I mentioned it earlier in my rant about voting, but I, I thought this was an important one to put on the air to demonstrate how people become inconsistent immediately when they're disingenuous. Uh, I mentioned Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz. Senator Ted Cruz from Texas is one of the darlings of the Tea Party. He tried to filibuster Obamacare and on and on and on. And I, my, uh, my, my, uh, I don't know how, what you would call this man in relation to my family. He is my, my son's birth father's sister's husband. So he's an uncle to my son by birth. 
Uh, by marriage. Okay, whatever that is. Really nice guy. Love him. When he was down here recently, we talked about some of the things going on. He said, I wish Ted Cruz was my senator. And this guy's from New York. He worked in a system uh, most of his life as a, uh, a parole agent. So uh, a probation officer or a parole officer, one or the other. Parole officer. People had actually been in and released, so parole officer. Wow, what a great guy Ted was because he was standing up against Obamacare and all this wasteful government spending and all. Now, I don't want to speak for Ted Cruz, but I would imagine, as pro-Second Amendment as Ted is, if you asked Mr. Cruz his opinion about states standing up to the federal government in response to uh, weapons and saying that they will not enforce federal gun laws and standing and saying the federal government should stay out of the state's business with that, he would think that's a grand, jolly idea. If you asked him about Obamacare, If a state passed a law in direct conflict with Obamacare but cited states' rights and a president chose not to interfere with that, I think Ted Cruz would be all over it and be happy about it and tell you this is states' rights because this is the ballywhoop cry of the right, states' rights. This is what Ted Cruz says about marijuana when it regards to state's rights. In an interview with the Libertarian magazine Reason, published on Monday, Cruz said he supports intelligent conversation about drug policy. Quote, I will say one thing that's been dismaying about the Obama administration, and quote, he continued, quote, the Obama administration's approach to drug policy is simply to announce that across the country it is going to stop enforcing certain drug laws. Now that may or may not have been a good policy, but I would suggest that it should concern anyone. It should even concern libertarians who support that policy outcome. Because the idea that the president simply says criminal laws that are on the books, we are not going to ignore them, that is a very dangerous precedent. But it's not just about laws, Ted. It's about a specific law. And it's also about this, okay? The federal government has not said that it will not prosecute people for marijuana. What it has said is if Colorado passes a law that specifically states that marijuana is legal under certain circumstances, even if it's in conflict with federal law, the federal government will not come and interfere. And as much as I hate siding with Obama on anything, this is the most constitutional approach the federal government could have to this. And it's not dangerous to liberty, P-Brain. Here's why. The federal government should always side with liberty of the individual citizen, when determining whether or not to invoke federal supremacy. So, if Colorado passed a law that said people no longer have free speech in Colorado, it would be the federal government's duty to say, hold on, this is a constitutionally protected freedom. You don't get to do this. But if Colorado legitimizes the use of recreational marijuana through a vote of its citizens, through an action of its government, is a sovereign state within the Union, and that legalization is not in conflict with the Constitution of the Republic, which it is not, then federal supremacy should not apply. Now, people would say, well, are you consistent, Jack? And I'd say, well, what do you mean? And they, they well, Colorado also passed a law limiting uh, magazines to 10 rounds. Should the federal government stop that? Well, first of all, the federal government has no interest in stopping that. But actually, I would tell you I'm completely consistent because I think if the federal government was doing its job, it would prohibit the infringement on the right to keep and bear arms by any state in any way whatsoever. 
that I would have the right to keep and bear whatever arms I damn well chose. Well, do you think you can have nuclear weapons? The people that say that you should be smacked so hard that your children born next year feel it on the side of their face. That is the dumbest argument in the world about arms. Arms, as it is dictated by the Constitution of the United States, are not nuclear and chemical weapons. They never were, and no one with a brain has ever insinuated that they are, and those that do on either side of the issue that say, well, well, should you have a nuclear missile? Uh, or those that say, yeah, we should have a nuclear missile. You're both morons. Arms, generally recognized, individual, deployable weaponry. Those are arms. If a soldier would use it as an individual... And further, if a soldier would have the authority to use it with basic rules of engagement, it is arms. Nuclear weaponry does not qualify for this. A soldier, a captain, an officer, commissioned in the United States Army, can't just blow shit up with nuclear weapons. He's got to get approval from the freaking President of the United States. So it does not apply there. So I'm completely consistent. They shouldn't be doing any of that. There should be no restrictions on the keeping and bearing of arms. There should only be restrictions on what is done with them. If I point it at you and take your, 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 your food away from you, I've committed theft. I should go to prison for theft. When it comes to, see, this is the thing. This is what I was talking about earlier when I was sending a message to Republicans, and some of you that are Republicans on your voter ID card probably get upset with me. You're not a Republican. You just think you are. Real Republicans that actually set policy. You're not part of the libertarian community. You do not espouse libertarian ideals. We are not with you. We are not part of what you're doing. We do not like what you're doing. You are not consistent with the philosophy of non-aggression. You are using the point of gun, the point of a gun and the threat of violence by government to enact your policies versus Democrat policies. You are not us. We are not you. Senator Ted Cruz, you are not a libertarian. He don't even claim to be. I don't like saying anybody's not a libertarian if they say they are. I don't think one libertarian should tell another libertarian you're not libertarian enough to be part of the club. But this guy doesn't claim to be a libertarian at all. He claims to be a Republican. It's exactly what he is. Not enforcing federal supremacy when a state has specifically said we are asserting our state's rights should be something that if Republicans were consistent at all, that they would support and they would find reasonable to do. This is not a refusal to enforce a federal law. It's a refusal to use federal supremacy when a state law conflicts with the federal law. Refusal to enforce a federal law would be the border laws, because the states do not have authority to enforce them. Okay, Now, I think that if we had actually a country run by libertarian principles, or even anarchist principles, we wouldn't need any immigration policy whatsoever, really. But in this current system where people can come here and immediately qualify for benefits, in-state tuition and all kinds of other goodies, well, we, we do kind of need a border and some security around it, which we don't have, and the federal government refuses to enforce it. That's a refusal of enforcement because it's not in conflict with a state law, and the federal government has told the states, you're not allowed to do this. You can't patrol the border. You can't arrest people for this. You leave that to us. It's a federal jurisdiction. Well, there's a point where the federal government's laying down on the job and not doing its job, not enforcing a law. 
again, state of Colorado, state of California, and many other states have legalized marijuana in certain ways. And if you think marijuana is bad, and you think marijuana is evil, and you don't think anybody should smoke or grow marijuana, then it should be stricken off the face of the earth. If you are consistent when you say things like a state should assert the right of its citizens to keep and bear arms in opposition to the federal government, then you should feel that a state has the same rights in regards to something like marijuana. I bring this up enough that I think some people must think, Jack must really be smoking dope in his spare time or something. I don't think I could be as effective as I am if I was smoking dope in my spare time. I really don't. Um, did I ever smoke marijuana? Yes. And I did inhale, but I was like in my teens. Um, I think early 20s once or twice too. But yeah, you forget shit when you smoke marijuana, right? That's that's not the point. It's, it's nothing to do with... The, the whole point of why this is important is to demonstrate, are you being consistent with what you say you are? If you think a state has a right to assert rights for its citizens in one area, if you're consistent, it would be in other areas as well. This is the part that people don't get. If you're really for freedom and liberty, if you're really for freedom and liberty, you should be okay with a state making anything legal that doesn't allow one person to harm another, period. In fact, you should be opposed to a state making anything illegal that doesn't cause one person to harm another. If I want to smoke dope, it's my business. It's none of your business. Now, if I want to smoke dope and hold you down and blow it in your face and make you smoke it too, that would be assault. Okay? Got it? And that would be illegal. Well, what if you need your dope so you break in my house? That would be burglary and probably theft and larceny, depending on what I did, and possibly vandalism and criminal trespass. There's all kinds of freaking laws for that. There's all kinds of freaking laws for that. So I point out the marijuana issue because it may lead you to find your inconsistencies. So if you think marijuana should be illegal and you think the federal government should go into the state of Colorado and raid marijuana dispensaries that are set up legally sanctioned by the state of Colorado, approved by Colorado voters, I hope you also think the federal government should be going into states that have asserted their, their firearms uh, uh, solve, uh, sovereignty in any way, shape, or form and saying, we're going we're gonna to come in and, and enforce those laws uh, whether you like it or not, state of Oklahoma, state of Wyoming, state of Montana. I disagree with you vehemently, but at least you're consistent in your argument that the federal government has supremacy, period, and is required to act on it. That's what Ted Cruz is saying here. The state of Texas, uh, if ever, you know, pulled their head out of their ass and decriminalized marijuana, that, that said, Ted Cruz is saying if his own state did this, the federal government should be required to exercise supremacy in direct opposition to the state's sovereign decree that this is no longer criminal activity within our state. And again, constitutionally, the only point the federal government is supposed to tell a state what to do is when a state's allowing behavior that violates another person's individual liberty and rights as a victim. In other words, when you have a state law that says black people got to ride in the back of a bus, the federal government should have got off its ass long before it did about issues like that. Because that's an individual sovereign rights to be treated as an equal. 
That's not states' rights. It never was states' rights. And those of you that champion the Democrats as the, the party of the minority and the, and the lower-income individuals, it was Democrats that did that shit. Just a little history lesson from not that long ago. We don't have to go back a thousand years to see hypocrisy in our annals of history lessons. Let's look at something else. You know, on this show we talk a lot about being prepared for the disasters that occur right in front of you and you, you don't even realize they're occurring. Uh, building resiliency in your life because we're on the cusp of an economic shift that's not going to be a catastrophic Great Depression, end of the world as we know it. People rounded up into FEMA camps. Ah! No, no. That what this country has done is slowly sucking the life out of the middle class of the nation. One person at a time. And people are just waking up to a new normal and a new reality and by and large like a bunch of dumbasses accepting it. And just thinking, we got to keep voting. Uh, we got to get this, this, this Obama guy. Everything will be back to normal because it was so great under George Bush and none of the shit that's happening today is stuff that that guy started or anything. I digress. But basically, I've been saying now for about four years, I'd say three years definitely, that I've been using the term downward class migration. And I said the media was talking about it back then, but they were not getting it. That Sooner or later, they would. That what they were talking about were people like, I grew up middle class. My dad was middle class. My dad still lives a great life over there in the suburbs. My dad worked really hard. He's in his 50s. He's going to retire in a few years, and he's solidly middle class. I'm in my 30s, and I'm barely getting by, and I'm in the lower middle class while my dad's in the upper middle class, and I've fallen down. Or my dad was a blue-collar middle class guy. He's still doing pretty good. He's in solid in the middle class. I'm not even lower middle class now. I'm below the middle class level. I'm the low income level. I've worked hard. I went to college. I've done everything I was supposed to do. I'm just not in the middle class. That that's what they meant. And that's happened, but that's not the problem. The problem is the class structure sliding behind the people. In other words, the people that are middle class, by every definition of income of the word, don't have what it meant to be middle class. And, when it, and I've got a great video on this. I'll post today so you can see more about it. But let me read you the article that Karim sent me because it shows the media starting to, starting to get it. In Manhattan, the upscale clothing retailer Barney's will replace the bankrupt discounter Loberman's whose Chelsea store closes in a few weeks. Across the, the county, country? Yeah, across the country, uh, across the country, uh, I thought they, were, they were started local, now they've gone national. I missed it there, sorry guys. Across the country, Olive Garden and Red Lobster restaurants are struggling, while fine dining chains like Capitol Grill are thriving. Capitol Grill is pretty amazing if you can afford to go there, by the way, guys. It's pretty outstanding, the level of quality at Capitol Grill. And General Electric... And at General Electric, the increase in demand for high-end dishwashers and refrigerators dwarfs the sales growth of mass market models. As politicians and pundits in Washington continue to spar over whether economic inequality uh, is in fact deepening, in corporate America, the reality is there's no debate at all. The post-recession reality is that the American customer base for business that appeal to the middle class is shrinking and the top tier pulls even further away. If there is any doubt, the speed at which companies are adapting to the new consumer landscape serves as a very convincing evidence. Within top consulting firms among Wall Street analysts, the shift is being described with the frankness more often associated with le left-wing academics than business experts. 
quote, those customers who have capital like real estate and stocks are in the top 20% are feeling pretty good, end quote, said John G. Maxwell, head of the global retail and consumer practice, PricewaterhouseCoopers. In response to upward shift in spending, PricewaterhouseCoopers clients, like big stores and restaurants, are chasing richer customers with a wider offering of high-end goods and services or focusing on rock-bottom prices to attract the expanding ranks of penny-pinching consumers. Quote, as retailer, a retailer or restaurant chain, if you're not really high-level or the low-level, that's a tough place to be, end quote, Mr. Waxwell said. You don't want to be stuck in the middle. Although the data on consumption is less readily available than figures that show the comparable split in income gains, new research by economist Steve Fazari of Washington University in St. Louis and Barry Cinnamon of the Federal Reserve Bank St. Louis backs up what is already apparent in the marketplace. In 2012, the top 5% of earners were responsible for 38% of domestic consumption, up from 28% in 1995, the researchers found. Even more striking, the current recovery has been driven almost entirely by the upper crust, According to Mr. Frazari and Mr. Cinnamon, 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 I don't know, Mr. C., Since 2009, the year the recession ended, inflation-adjusted spending by this top echelon has risen 17% compared with just 1% among the bottom 95%. You can read the rest of the article if you want to and figure out what Mr. Senamon's name really is. Um, but it's a pretty long article. But here's the upshot. People selling expensive shit are doing really good. People expend, ex selling really cheap shit are doing really good. People selling mid-tier are doing shitty. What does this have to do with the erosion of the middle class? We have not seen that many people by income level fall out of the middle class to account for this. What you've seen is inflationary aspects of the economy, price quality out of the range of the true middle class, that mid-tier quality is too expensive for them, And their confidence in the economy has waned to the point where they're making decisions to spend as little money as possible. They're doing it in a variety of ways. They're buying lower quality product, true, but what they're more likely to do is wait longer to buy the new item. In other words, the guy that just six years ago would have looked at his stove and said, you know, we've had that stove a long time. We really have. There's some new models now. There's some more efficient stuff. We're not going to go out and buy a $5,000 restaurant you know, quality commercial stove or anything, but we could probably save enough money over a few years in energy costs by going to a better quality unit. Mom works hard cooking in the kitchen. I like to cook, too. Let's, hell, let's go ahead and replace that stove. Oh, you know what? While we're at it, so that the dishwasher and the refrigerator match, let's do all three, and we'll Craigslist the other stuff, or we'll donate it to charity. That that guy looks at it and goes, still works. Still works. Don't need a new one yet. And they're waiting until they actually need to replace it. And that they're also more likely when they finally go, the stove is on its last legs. Really got to replace it. To not also replace the refrigerator and the dishwasher just so that they'll match. Yeah, buy something that looks like it. It'll be good enough. It's good enough for my dad. Right? That that's it. But what, that's not even a bad decision. But it's counter to American philosophy in today's day and age. That's not how the middle class thinks. That's how their grandparents and their parents thought. 
It's not how they think. They're not doing it because all of a sudden they walk up and went, huh, we're being a bunch of dumbasses with our money. The harsh financial reality right in the face. Right in the face. Multiple. That's what they're getting. What's the tuition bill for college now? Holy crap. How much is my insurance going up? Holy crap. Who got laid off at the, at the plant? Man, that guy's been forever there. I mean, I never thought they'd let him go. I still got my job. But God, I thought I'd go before him. Holy crap. Kid got out of college two years ago. He still doesn't have a job. What's he doing? And the kid's like, Dad, I've tried. And he shows him all the places he's applied and all the things he's done. Resume, cover letter, and he's working as a bartender. And he's like, holy crap. That That's happening. And I'll tell you what, it's going to dogpile it on. The new insurance bills people are getting right now for Obamacare. For every person benefiting, three are being jacked up for it. You know? But my wife and I now, in our insurance, we have maternity coverage. That's important. If she has a baby, even though she's not going to, even though we don't want the coverage, it's covered. Me, my deductible is lower. Yeah, everybody's whining because they had to go to a higher deductible for their insurance. No, not me. My deductible went down. Oh, you benefited, Jack? Oh, hell no. Hell no. Obamacare, I'm not going to say Obama directly, right? It was not fair. I was going to say it. But the truth is, Obamacare says that my deductible that I chose in the past is just too high. It's dangerous. That is dangerous for me to have that deductible. So my insurance company was forced to lower my deductible and charge me more money. Forced to. No, just the, can't have one that high anymore. I'm like, I'm okay with my deductible being that high. I'm carrying insurance, so if I need a heart transplant, I can get one. They can chase me for the twelve grand. They'll do the operation. I can come up with the money eventually. I'd rather have my money than give it to an insurance company. I'm relatively healthy. I'm fine. I don't need a deductible down at like five to seven thousand dollars a year. I don't go to the doctor every other week. That's not my product. I liked my product. So you can't have that. You're going to pay more and we're going to give you better benefits whether you like it or not. As to your wife, we're giving her benefits and charging for them that she has no hope ever, ever, ever using. By the way, neither one of us can talk to our insurance companies because they're so busy dealing with all this shit. I think my wife was on the phone for over two hours to talk to a... How long? Legitimate, real-time feedback, folks. Three hours, 45 minutes, ate up of cell phone time while she drove to frickin' Arlington to talk to these ass clowns because they don't have time to talk to anybody. Just to get the bill fixed. Not to complain, just to say, hey, look, you charged me the wrong amount of money, let's square, square this away. Not disputing the actual rate like they actually screwed up the bank draft. Three hours and 45 minutes. And all of this together is going to result in more and more people scraping to get by. We're seeing it right now. We're seeing people, when we go to the store, mumbling to themselves that they can't afford things. Like meat. Like meat. And you think it's anything new? You think it's anything new at all? Let me pause for a second. 
play a little bit of classic rock and roll from a guy who was kind of a prophet. Way too accurate about way too many things. His name was Warren Zevin. Most of them, most of you guys probably know him from uh, the movie Werewolves in London. And uh, the, the Werewolf of London was, or no, not the movie Werewolves of London. It was The movie was called The Color of Money with Tom Cruise in it about pool hustling. And the song was Werewolves of London. That's where he's most known for. And his other thing that you might know him from is the song Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Because in it, the famous shit has hit the fan line is uttered. This is back in the 70s. But this is another song. This is kind of a sweet-sounding song. But it really hits you hard if you listen to the words. I have never actually played a song in the middle of a show before. But I'm going to do it for you today. And I want you to think about what I said about people not being able to afford meat. And I want you to listen to the song that I believe was released in 1977. And I want you to understand what's happened to your country while you hear it. And if anybody takes any religious connotations off of this, because the word Muhammad is used, you're a moron. This song was actually composed by Zevin after seeing a guy dressed like an Arab with a ghetto blaster up to his ear at a Halloween party. So that's where that part of the song comes in. Listen to the words in between and think of how it reflects on your life today. And I'll be right back. And this is a live version of the song, so it'll be a little rough in some spots. Somebody 
think that'll become a tradition or anything playing a song uh, and uh, other than occasionally when I throw something in at the end but uh, th that song is very very telling and again this was written I believe in 1977 if it wasn't 77 it was 76 it was in that that time frame uh, if you heard uh, a little bit of a harmony in there and thought who is that for those of you that are into classic rock That live version of that song actually featured no less than the pretender Jackson Brown. And I kind of like uh, that. Somebody mentioned this in the comments section, but there were times where Warren was called the offender. So what you had there was the offender and the pretender on stage together. Um, so Jackson Brown was in on this. Uh, but I just kind of threw that out as a little trivia thing for you there. and An interesting thing for those of you that like music from this era. Um, but I want to read to you the line that actually it made me think of everybody's desperate trying to make ends meet work all day and still can't pay the price of gasoline and meat. Alas, their lives are incomplete. And here you see Warren really hitting on the problem. The problem isn't the economy. It's the incompleteness of the lives of the individual. There's another thing here that I don't know that he meant it the way that it might be taken today. But if we just look at the sheriff as authority, you know the sheriff's got his problems too. He will surely take them out on you. Those two lines say as much about the society we live in 2014 as the ages of stagflation that Warren was singing during in the mid-70s. In many ways, we are right back there again with our economy, and in many ways it's worse. So the government's had about 30 years to help us and fix things, and they've put us right back in the same muck with a much bigger problem because instead of looking at four or five trillion dollars in debt, we're looking at 17 trillion dollars in debt, all in the form of government bonds. And what did I say you do when you issue a bond? You impose a tax on your children and or grandchildren. So your grandchildren right now have a $17 trillion dollar tax sitting on their back. In fact, your children have a big chunk of that tax bill as well. And while they're going to deal with that, right now we still have people that can't aff afford the price of gasoline and meat. And it's because of this erosion of the middle class. And again, it's because of actually not people falling from the class but the class itself eroding in meaning. What it meant to be middle class, even when this song was written, was in many ways better 
than what it means to be middle class today. Oh, we didn't have the gadgets and the technology and the internet and everything. I, I admit that, that there's a lot of things that society has developed in 30 years that has really made our lives more enjoyable in a lot of ways and opened up new possibilities. There's no doubt about that. But when you looked at what a solid middle class person could purchase as a lifestyle relevant to everybody around them, In 1974, exactly 30 years later in 2014, inflation-adjusted income, solid middle class, means less today than it did in 1974. And there are still people that can't afford the price of gasoline and meat, and they're not all people on the government dole. They're people that work all day. And those people in authority over us have their problems too, and they will surely take them out on you. Hopefully I've exposed you to a new musician because he was a pretty amazing guy. And let's go on and take at least one more thing before we wrap up today. Let's look for something optimistic. Uh, the complete and total revamping and re you know, just the destruction, basically, of our current public education system, which is a dinosaur and needs to go away. And looking to another nation where they don't have the educational system in place in many areas and how they're educating people that they have a hard time even you know reaching right now and having the resources to educate and how that can tell us about this coming revolution in education that I'm talking about over the next 10 years. Um, this article is on CNET. India's first school in the cloud aims to elevate kids. In 1999, Surgenta Murta tried something unusual in, a New Del in New Delhi, India. He placed a computer behind a clear plastic panel in one of the slums and just left it there. Fully expecting it to be disassembled and sold for parts, the Newcastle University professor of educational technology came back eight hours later uh, to a discovery that would change the course of his life and quite possibly the way we educate our children. A group of kids was using the computer to surf the net in a language they didn't understand, English. Thinking that maybe someone had coached the kids, Murta replaced the, his equipment in a rural placed his equipment in a rural village 200 miles away, where the chances of someone knowing how to surf the internet, let alone use a computer, were slim. After two months, Murta returned to find the kids working the computer as if it was second nature. According to a report in Wired, one of the kids told him, "You've given us a machine that only works in English, so we had to teach ourselves English." Rural village, India. Just leaves the computer there, no instruction manual in Hindi. The kid says, you've given us a machine that only works in English, so we had to teach ourselves English. That experience, which became known as the hole-in-the-wall experiment, made Murta realize the kids have an amazing capacity to learn on their own and that, in fact, they even seem to absorb information better when left to their natural curiosity. Murta called this method of education soul. S-O-L-E, Self-Organized Learning Environment, and gave a talk about it at the popular idea-sharing conference, uh, TED. The talk embedded below garnered him $1 million TED Prize, which he has used to fund a series of learning labs he's calling Schools in the Cloud. These use his concept of minimally, minimally invasive education to allow kids to ask and answer questions for themselves by ta tapping one another and online mentors and resources. India's first school in the cloud opens Tuesday in Kalajahi, New Delhi, just across the street from the site of the original hole-in-the-wall experiment. 
Sundanta Kalahami, research director at the School of the Cloud Project, says, quote, working in a small group, children can competently search for answers to big questions, drawing rational, logical conclusions. This is far ahead of what is expected of them in their school curriculum and kind of a learning activated by questions, not answers. In addition to having access to Internet-connected computers, the School in the Cloud will also plug into other initiatives started by Murta called the Granny Cloud. It allows retired teachers in the U.K. to provide guidance to students through their knowledge-seeking process. The teachers don't provide the answers to the kids. They simply offer support and occasional guidance via Skype. Although this is, in the, this is the second school in the cloud to open in the world, the first came online at the high school in Killingsworth, England, in November of last year. It is the first one to go live in India, where four more are scheduled to open across the country from rural villages to city slums. The hope is that the cloud classrooms will bolster learning in communities where there's a lack of access to education. Quote, in India, we will be looking for two things, Murta said. Quote, whether the children can learn to read and also search the Internet accurately by themselves. If they can do this, then it's the end of schooling as we know it, end quote. And we already know the answer to can they. Yes, they can. Ooh, yes, they can for real. You give kids a computer, it only uses a language they don't understand, they've never seen one before, they mess around with it a little bit, they figure out basically what it does, they see a language they don't understand, they probably figure out eventually something like Google Translator, and next thing you know they're learning a new language and all the stuff that goes along with being on a computer. What does this mean? I've told you, I've told you what it means. Thousands of teachers without jobs in the next 10 years. Goodbye, paycheck. Goodbye, paycheck. Goodbye, paycheck. Dinosaur system going away. <gasps> the horrors. Are you, are you one of the people that would have said we should have made elevators remain so complicated uh, just so elevator operators could keep their freaking jobs? Because at one time, it was a good job to operate an elevator. Are you saying, Jack, that being an elevator operator is no more complicated than being a school teacher? No, I'm not. I'm saying it took a hundred more years for us to develop technology that would enable us to need less not no teachers. Less not no. Not none. Less. I'm saying the kids today can learn faster and do more in less time if they are untethered of the, re, re, the uh, you know the regimental mentality of a Prussian education system that's been in existence since the 1800s. That was never designed to make the most intelligent people it could. It was designed to make the, the, the people intelligent enough to conform and to stratify them into levels of intelligence to then be utilized within society at the level they stratified at. And what I mean by that is freaking gifted classes, Right? Well, these are the kids that go to the top schools. These are the kids that go to the so the gifted kids in high school that take some college classes and stuff like that. They go to the top top universities and they get top positions in society. At least that's the way it used to work before they destroyed the whole damn economy they were going into, right? But that that's basically it. And then the kid that's like okay, well he goes to like the the you know the next tier of university. And then the kids that are average, they used to go to just like trade school or go get a job. Now they go to like, you know, the state level colleges. Right? And then the kids that are below that, they do a trade school or something like that or just get a job. And then the bottom tier come out of the same education system and don't know jack diddly shit. They can barely read. 
The, the little rant I did on YouTube recently where I talked about the, the principal in, in Illinois who was disturbed that they put up these no-gun signs in the school areas and they had a picture of a gun on them. She's like, zero tolerance should be the sign, too. The gun is evil. We can't have that picture. It's disturbing. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, lady, and people, somebody commented on that video and said that I, I need to work for the poor wages that these educators get for five years so that I can understand it. I looked up that principal's salary, what a principal in her school district makes. She makes 144 grand a year. I'm sure teachers don't make that much there, but the principal whining about it makes almost a hundred and a half a year. So, so much for that little argument. But that whole thing's falling apart. Because, but here's here's what I was bringing up the sign for that principal. Do you know why they got to put a picture of a gun on the no gun sign? Because the people you've put out in society can't read the freaking sign. They need a picture with the Ghostbusters dad gone thing on it to understand what it means. That's why. I am not anti teacher. I am anti education system as it currently stands. We need maybe half the teachers we have with technology enabling things. We need options for students and parents. And here's the thing. You can say we don't. You can say it ain't going to happen. You can say we need to you know, keep pumping money into the system and make it work. I don't have to argue with you because it's coming, baby. It's going to happen. It's happening right now. This dinosaur is like a big crocodile in a death roll. It's doing everything it can to stay alive. And there's little Davids with slingshots popping Goliath everywhere right now. Homeschool movement, unschooling movement, Khan Academy, Connections Academy. Boom, boom, bam. Hit it left and right because here's the reality. This education system is about 150 years old. Don't know if you've been paying attention, but a lot of shit has changed in 150 years. Okay? Society has evolved. For all our problems, humans are innovative, intelligent creatures. And we've, we've developed technology over the last hundred years that a person in 1914, a hundred years ago, could never have even conceived, let alone believed. We've done things from a technology standpoint and from a developmental standpoint that a hundred years ago no one could have even thought of. Except a few really out there science fiction writers, like the guy that, that predicted satellites, but he thought they would be made out of bricks. Right? I don't remember who that was. We have phones now with more computing power than you could put on a desktop just 20 years ago. We can share information at light speed. We can look somebody in the eye in a conversation between here and Australia. And have a relevant face-to-face -face conversation. Stuff that was considered Star Trek stuff in the 1960s is everyday yawn stuff today. Why does this matter to the education system? It is unreasonable that a system based on archaic practices would fail to evolve as the society and the technology alongside it evolved. The education system is stuck in 1950. And it's 2014. The people in the education system think that the textbook and the content being taught and changing that is evolving the system. No. Changing the system is evolving the system. The system still is 
20 to 30 kids sitting in straight rows in a classroom, or some of you kooks put them in a circle, right? Okay? And listening to one person talk and doing what they're told and being dictated to and having the curriculum assigned and having to meet the requirements based on the curriculum with very little independent thought, being judged A, B, C, D, or F. No one knows why there's not an E. Whatever. Students taking courses and learning things that they will never use when that study time could be based on things that they are going to use by their own choice. Coming out of school and now being told, now being told this basically, if you get a high school diploma in America today, it doesn't mean shit. You need it, but it doesn't mean anything. No one's going to hire you. You need to go to college or you're shit. That's the message to our students today. You know what? If you can't give kids enough value when you take 13 years of their lives from them, that they are equipped to have a decent job, you're doing a shitty job. You're doing a shitty job. A kid should come out of high school able to go function in a job and make a decent living. They don't. There's a lot of political reasons for that, because basically... If they've done a good job in school, they probably can. But I'll tell you what, a high school kid should come out and be able to start a business. Should have enough fundamental understanding of how the world works to start a business. To know what they want in life. You know what most kids say when you ask them when they graduate high school today? What do you want to do? Other than, well, I'm going to this school or that school. They don't freaking know. They don't have any idea what they want to do anymore. Now there's... Don't say, well, there's this girl and she's going to be this and the da 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 And they took 17 college credits in high school and it really works and it's wonderful. For those kids, the system works. For the kid that likes to sit down, be told what to do, given assignments, do assignments, get patted on the head, good job, Becky, you got an A. Really good at taking tests and is good at conformance, the system works. Guess what? That is not the average person. It never has been, but it really isn't today. And what this man's work has shown us is you can take kids that don't know jack shit, give them a mouse and an internet connection and a monitor and a keyboard, and they don't even have to know the language. They don't even have to know the language that the content's in, and you can come back in six months, and they know more than everybody around them who did not partake. And that they learn faster, And they work harder, and they cooperate. The school system that we have designed, based on the Prussian model, does not create cooperation among students. It creates competition among students, and it, it does not create positive competition. Positive competition is who can do the best, who can be the best leader, who can stand up and help others. That's positive competition. No, It creates psychological competition for a pecking order. Who's cool and who's not? Who's picked on and who's picked on more? In a false dynamic that you say teaches them about the real world. There is nothing in the school system teaching our children about the real world from a psychological standpoint today. There is no place other than the public education system where a free person not incarcerated in a prison would be assaulted by another human being and told to deal with it. Shake hands and get over it. Don't do that anymore. If I punch you in the face 
at the workplace, I am fired and I should be, and I'm probably looking at going to jail. If I verbally assault you and, and put you down in the workplace, I am fired. If I do those things in school, maybe I get in-school suspension. Maybe I get a slap on the wrist of some kind or another. But the basic message is you got to deal with it. This is the real world. It is not the real world. When you come work for somebody like me, when I used to run companies, I do not tell you this is what you do at 8 o'clock, this is what you do at 9 o'clock, this is what you do at 10 o'clock, and grade you at the end of the day and decide whether or not you did a good enough job. I say this is your job, get on with it. And if you don't do it, you don't get a grade, you get freaking fired. There is nothing our current education system is doing that's really teaching our children to deal with that reality. At least you're te teaching them to read and to write and basic mathematics. I'll give you that. There's no reason for a 10th grader to be taking freaking calculus, though. None. Unless that individual has a desire to go into a part of the world and life and career that is going to use calculus, there is no reason. There's something better for that kid's mind to be doing. And you know what? What? People would say is, well, how do we know what that is? Respect children for what they are. Small, developing humans. They're not property. They're not the property of the state. They're not the property of their parents. They're individuals with the same rights that you and I have. They need certain guidance and protections along the way. That's what we do as parents, not a state. The job of the parent is to work themselves out of business to get that person to sovereignty as quickly and swiftly as possible, and to be a guide and a mentor throughout their life, not to own them. The reason our education system is so effed up, and I want to say the real word there, because that's how I feel, is because children inside our educational system today are treated like property. They are treated like the property of the state. They are seen as a dollar sign. Every student that comes into your district represents more tax dollars. Everyone that leaves represents less tax dollars that your school gets. It is a effed up system that is dying, and I, for one, am happy for it. And this little experiment is proof that at least for some of the kids trapped in this system, there are better options, self-directed learning. And I believe that the majority of our children, once given a foundational knowledge of reading and writing, which a parent can do by reading them a story about Thomas the freaking train. They can be untethered and set loose and with guidance can learn more faster and develop better than they ever have or ever will in our public education system. Oh, I know. I'm just a mean Republican that hates teachers. If you're going to argue that, don't bother. I don't have time for it. That is not what I'm saying. And anybody who's honest knows this. We cannot, and, and here's the thing, back to what I talked about when we talked about voting. Why do you believe that our current system of education is necessary? Why do you believe that everybody should go to college? Why do you believe that most teachers are very, very hardworking and underpaid? Not, don't give me the paint. What is the seed of the belief? The seed of the belief The most teachers work really hard and are underpaid is the media has told you that over and over and over again. Period. And don't look for teachers to turn around and say, no, we're not. There's no segment of society that you would label in mass overworked and underpaid that's going to turn around and go, 
it's not true. We really we 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 get three three months a year off. We get every government holiday off, and 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 and, and it, with the exception of some districts where we're underpaid, and a lot of districts we're, we're very well paid for the time that we work, and we get better benefits than most people in the private sector. And and, and honestly, we hang out with kids all day. They're they're not going to tell you that, and you can't expect that they would. So that's the root of that belief that it's just been a media campaign. Why do you believe that our current education model is the best one we can have? Because you've been told that it is, and you were told that it is by it. You were in the system that told you it was the best system. The people giving it to you told you it was the best that you could get. That's not exactly an unbiased endorsement. Why do you believe that every child should go to college? Because since the 1970s, there's been a full-on, full-court press to deliver that message to you and program it to you. Your parents told you that. Your teachers told you that. Of course you believe it. What else would you believe? So how would we accurately examine this? I think we'd say, well, what's a workday for a teacher? What's an average teacher's salary? And what do they make per hour versus a private sector employee expected to do the same amount of work? I'd be interested in seeing a study that did that. And I think you'd find something. I think that you'd find in some states and in some school districts that teachers are indeed overworked and underpaid. And in some school districts, teachers are highly overpaid. And in the, in the reality that if you compare it to other jobs, it's a pretty decent job with a lot of time off that most people never get. You know, and that's, that's the truth. But then we're just going to wholesale tell society all of them are just like, like they're heroes. Being a teacher does not make you a hero. Even if you have a job teaching kids, it's important, but it doesn't make you a hero. The guy that fixes my truck and puts brakes on it, if he does it wrong, is likely to have people die. Okay? If he does his job wrong, people die. If, if you do your job not quite right, kids get lower test scores. That may or may not even really matter. Doesn't mean your job's not important, but if, if you're a hero because you taught Johnny his ABCs, the guy that put the brakes on my truck and didn't have my F-350 run into a family in K-Bosh, he's a hero too, right? You know? Come on, let's be, let me, seriously. You're not a hero because you're a teacher. Certainly not. Can we at least start there? And can we stop the blanket of all of them are underpaid? Really? Is the principal who makes 144 grand a year underpaid? That, that thinks a, a, an Annie Gunn sign with a gun picture on it is a problem? Is she under, over, underpaid and overworked? This is the best type of educational system we can build. That's the other lie. Really? Did, how do you, if you let go of the seed of the belief, how would you evaluate that logically? What does it look like when students are removed from this system and paced, placed in competing systems? And what is their record of achievement versus students who stay in the system? And don't compare the most gifted to the most average. Compare average to average. That would be the way that you, because the average person is average, they make up the majority of people, compare that. And I think if we look at that, if we look at the average homeschooled student, the average chartered school student, the average student that's in any type of alternative educational system, that the average comes way up. Way, way up. Now, it may not come up in their math scores on their ACTs. It may or it may not. It all depends on what has been important to that student. But this is proof, guys. It's coming. And why do I, why do I spend so much time on this today? Just because 
You know, I, I, I'm pissed, obviously, about the way our children are treated. The more I think about my education, I think, what a waste of my time most of it was. But that's not why. I'm here to prepare you. I'm here to prepare, prepare you for the future. I'm here to prepare you for great shifts in our society. If you think the economic shifts we're going to go through are any more important than the shifts an entire industry like education is going to go through, you're, miss, you're missing it. I'm telling you, it's coming. Parts of it are already here. You will see doors closed on public schools over the next 10 years. Not because they're building a new school, because they're not going to have enough students. You're going to have school districts with 10 middle schools. All of a sudden have nine. All of a sudden have eight. All of a sudden have six. And a school a district that big, it's probably where they're going to stay, about six. And not because everybody left because it's Detroit. Relatively stable population. Oh, but that's coming too because we're having less babies, folks. So going into 20 years out, you're going to see less schools because there's less students. So more coming out and more just not being put in. You got it. You got one of the biggest financial sectors in the nation on the cusp of a dramatic revolution. You got a, you got so many peripheral industries, test prep companies go out of business. You won't need as many. You'll have all types of new entrepreneurs coming into this space, all types of new businesses in this space, but it won't be prepare for the ACTs because there's going to be a whole block of students going, we don't give a shit about the ACTs. Don't care if our score's one. Don't care at all. No designs on entering the secondary education market of college inside the existing space. We've got our own place we're going over here. Whole thing tore down. <laughs> How about this? Student loan bubble. Called that years ago. People are finally admitting it now. Student loan bubble. Tremendous amount of debt and student loans. Lots of it will never be paid back. Students, they're now in the workforce, will have wages garnished at small rates for the rest of their lives. But that money's gone. It's never being fully repaid. More and more students being asked to take out these loans every year, less and less being willing to do so. What happens in the financial sector one year when we come out with a report and say that the total dollars borrowed by students is down by 20%, even though tuition is up by 25%? You don't think that kind of thing's coming? Oh, it is. Another industry taken down a peg. Not gone away, but really, really taken down. I mean, come on, it's the banks, so they're always going to have some, some way to print more money. But that, that whole world is shattering. This one, though, is good. This is a good thing. It doesn't mean a lot of people won't get hurt. I mean, D-Day was a good thing. I wish we would have never had to fight World War II. I wish we never fought World War I. We would have never had a World War II, right? But by the time we were that far into it, D-Day was a good thing. There's no doubt that the, you know, the German aggression in Europe had to be stamped out. What was going on? People being eliminated. Just, that had to happen. But how many people died on D-Day? So D-Day was a good thing. But a lot of people got hurt. And if you think through history, with more dramatic and less dramatic examples, there's many cases of that. 
The American Revolution was a good thing. But how many people died? How many people's lives were destroyed? This is an educational revolution. It's a good thing. But if you're a teacher, you might think that I, in some way, will feel good when you lose your job. I see it as a necessary evil. The system's too big. Therefore, all of the people currently feeding off the system cannot be sustained. Therefore, it has to happen to somebody. And it'll happen to people that deserve it, and it'll happen to people that don't deserve it. And the more union involvement you have wherever you're teaching, the, the more it will be tilted toward the people who are the biggest parasites. If you're a teacher and you think I'm making it up, propose merit pay at your next union meeting and see what happens. See how quickly you're attacked. Propose it. Just, just say, well, what if we considered this? What if we considered paying teachers who did a better job a better wage? Watch what happens. And that system can't stand. There will be probably half a dozen legitimate options added for people to homeschool their children this year through Internet technologies that will make it easier for the parent that goes, I want to do this, but I don't know how. At least half a dozen legitimate, full-on, total curriculum-based things. Not just state-sponsored either. Private. Completely, totally private. Pick your curriculum. And it will cost a fraction of sending your kids to private school. There will be businesses that will be set up as remote classrooms where students will go as homeschool students, but it won't be like what homeschoolers are really doing today. It'll be like this, this just like, like a, like an office percolator environment. Where a parent will take a kid and drop them off for four hours on a Thursday to work on their science project. And the kid will walk in and he'll have a desk and there'll be a fee for that. And he'll have a computer and he'll start doing his work. And you say, why wouldn't he just do that at home? Because there'll be a kid right next to him. And those kids will be in there collaborating. They'll be working together. They'll be sitting, there'll be five kids on a whiteboard figuring out how to do something. This year. There'll be at least one business like that established that will be successful and significant and may damn near become, be damn near likely over a few years to become a franchise. If you think this isn't about survival, buddy, you, you what if this was the automotive industry that was going to have a revolution like this in the next five to ten years? Wouldn't you see it as earth shattering? This is bigger. Because it's also going to affect the type of people that are coming out of this education system. And in 10 years, if you're 30 in 10 years, you're going to be 40. And when you're 40, you're going to start realizing for the first time you're not the young dog anymore. And there's going to be these aggressive 24, 25-year-olds in the market competing with you. This is the education that they're going to be coming from. This is the education they're going to be coming from. If you're if you're 30 and you're going to be 40, you might think that's the one thing. If you're 25, buddy, by the time you're 45, they're going to be full on. 25-year-olds entering the workplace with the level of creativity that comes from this type of an education. That's what you're going to compete with. You better get your shit straight so that, they're, so that there's somebody you can hire. Or you're going to end up working for them. 
You can be 45 and working for somebody that's 24. And that has always been true. But with this, it's going to magnify the number of people in the marketplace like me, like I was in my 20s. Do you know that when I was 24 years old, actually, no, I was 22, 23, 23 years old, contracting at Lockheed Martin in Grand Prairie, Texas, I was a crew chief for five people that worked for me. The youngest person on that crew was exactly one day older than my father. There's going to be a lot more people like that in the future because of this paradigm shift. You got to start looking around and thinking about all the things that will change, positive and negative in society, because this change is coming. This is as big as a stock market crash or rally, bigger. It's going to have longer, more lasting impacts. An entire way of life is going to shift. It's nothing to be afraid of, but it's something to be aware of. And again, I look forward to it. I know that the generation of 20-somethings that we'll be looking at 10 years from now are going to be dramatically different than the, 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 the group of 20-somethings that we have today. Don't be offended if you're in your 20s. I don't think you're all teacups. Sure hell, a shitload of you are, though. And if, you, if you're 20-something and you're not a teacup, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I call you guys teacups. You know the guys that are teacups. You're like, God, why, what is wrong with all these people around me? Yeah, it, it, we're going to enter a, a stage of society where you can't be that way anymore. You're going to have to keep up or fall behind. And no law will keep you from falling behind. You can pass no child left behind laws all you want. People that do are going to achieve, and the people that don't shall not. It's always been the case. It's about to be magnified in ways you can't even imagine. And as I'm ending, this is where I usually tell you what you should be doing and what you need to do to prepare. Let me ask you today. What do you think you need to be doing? What do you think the future holds? How will it impact you? I'd love to hear from people today that are like me. They're in your, your mid-40s. And you think about what, what things are going to be like with this shift when you're in your mid-60s. And I like to hear from people today that are in their mid-60s that are, you're going to be 85 when some of these kids are really coming into their own out of this new paradigm in education. What are your thoughts? Those of you that are in your 20s, guys, I hate to tell you this, but a lot of you are going to be part of what's going to be called the lost generation. Unless you find yourselves, because no one's coming to find you. What's it going to be like when you are competing with these people? When you're at what's supposed to be the prime of your career and they're on fire with things that you've never even considered before. And if we have any really young listeners, especially that are already in this educational space, what do you think it means for your future? If we have parents of really young children who in the next five years before they enter the educational world have a chance to pick what they're going to do. How will this influence your decisions? If we have parents in the making, young couples that know they're going to have children soon, but not quite yet, where you're really looking at, like, by the time your kid's five or six years old, we're going to be seven to eight years into our future. How will this impact your decisions for your children? If you own a business or you're building a business and you're going to be employing people, how will this impact who you will hire? If you're a teacher and you're mad at me, get over your madness for a minute and ask yourself this. Do you think you would still have a job 
if half of the teacher jobs in America were eliminated? And how would that affect you, positive or negative? If you think it can't happen, there were a lot of people that didn't think we'd ever step foot on the moon in 1950. In 1800, the thought that we would have a machine that would let people fly was ridiculous. In the 1970s, being able to sit down behind your computer screen and have a conversation with somebody thousands of miles away in a video conference was considered either Star Trek or, yeah, if that ever ever happens, it'll be like the super rich that have that. Or it'll be a hundred years from now. Today it's called Skype. Anybody with a $200 Chromebook and an internet connection can use it. Frankly, anybody with an iPhone can use it. If you think these things I was talking about today are just me making stuff up off the cuff, if you think they can't happen, you are the one that's most in danger when they do. What are you going to do to be part of the solution? Or at least get out of the way of the conflict resolution of the problem that we're going to see. What are you going to do? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep building my own life, and I'm going to support these measures wherever I can. I am going to be part of the solution. But again, what are you going to do? And with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
sure